Please take your Bibles if you would. God's very powerful, very holy, very fitting word for us today and every day. And let's by his grace open it to Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Last Sunday we introduced, spent a lot of time talking about we were entering a final major section of Colossians that the previous 53-ish verses leading up to 3-5 were all laying this foundation for now God to bring commands to turn his attention to how he wants to sanctify us, a lifelong repenting of our sin, and he lays out his will through these commands for the path that he wants his followers to follow and to tell us how he wants to transform us. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 15, captures a little of this spirit when it says, for the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one, Christ, has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live, even as coming out of the baptism waters today depicts those who are raised to new life in Christ might no longer live for themselves. That's the emphasis of Colossians 3 and 4. But for him, for who for their sake died and was raised. The very first thing God does when he starts the commands is turn to the do-nots or the no-nos or the things that he wants us to be done with. Anything that is still earthly within us, lest we get too caught up in the particular sins mentioned, which we will study today, we also need to realize that there are many, many more beyond this list that he gives here in a very abbreviated form. But we are to be done with sin because Christ died for it, Christ paid for it, Christ released us from it, and he came not only to forgive our sin, but Peter put it so succinctly in 1 Peter 2.24 on the next slide. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And now notice that it doesn't go to so he might forgive us. Though other scriptures make that abundantly clear. It starts with that forgiveness of our sin. But he doesn't want us to stop with just the forgiveness of our sin, as huge as that is. Ultimately, so that we will die to our sin. Or the way he had Paul write it in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1 is, we have these incredible promises, and right before that is how, Father will, how God will be a father to us and be intimate with us and walk with us in all, all of this. Since we have those promises, let us cleanse ourselves. So if you think of the impurity in Colossians 3.5, cleanse ourselves of every defilement of body as well as of spirit. And then he re-describes that, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. So last week we talked about the fact that we have had our flesh crucified according to Galatians 5.24. So it doesn't, we don't cling to it. It doesn't cling to us. It isn't still welcome in our lives. We are not to allow it to just go on unaddressed. We're not to play with it. We're not to feed it in any way. 
We are to be done with it. It is to be dead to us. All the passions, all the desires, all the coveting, all the chasing, all the things that we used to do for lesser gods, like sex, money, materialism, and a host of other evils, must now be given fully to God and to Christ. From the very beginning, Genesis 4, God speaking to Cain after he has murdered his brother. Sin is crouching at the door. What a picture of its constant, relentless pursuit of every human. Its desire is contrary to you, and it's contrary to God. New American Standard translates that little phrase, its desire is for you. It wants to consume you. But you must, ESV, rule over it. NIV, master it. Martin Lloyd-Jones describing this. When you feel that first motion of sin, when, when you feel that crouching at the door, say to yourself, I am not having any dealings with this at all. Expose this thing and say, this is evil, this is vileness. Pull it out, look at it, denounce it, hate it for what it is, and then deal with it. So God, from the opening of Colossians 1.9, where it talks about us walking, uh, fully pleasing to the Lord, and 2.6, where it says we've received Christ and we're now to walk in him, rooted, built up, and established in him. We are to be continually parting ways with sin, with all that God hates, and all that Christ died to destroy. No matter how alluring a particular sin may be to any of us, or how accepted it might be in the culture around us. Love the way Peter again put it in chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Motivation, gospel. Christ suffered in the flesh. Response for us out of that? Arm yourselves. There's the graphic picture. Arm yourselves with that same way of thinking. Willing to suffer. Willing to do whatever in order to cease from sin and live out the rest of the time no longer for human passions, same word as in Colossians 3.5, but for the will of God. And then like Colossians 3.7 talks about, you've already spent enough time doing it, so Peter emphasizes that same thing. Hal Lindsey differentiated at one point between a true Christian who desires to be delivered from sin and all others who simply want to escape sin's consequences. J.C. Ryle, the true Christian hates sin, flees from it, fights against it, considers it his greatest plague, resents the burden of its presence, mourns when he falls under its influence, and longs to be completely delivered from it. John Owen, whom we quoted last week, again here, we must always be at the task of mortifying sin. If we deliberately permit one to escape, God will not be pleased. Sin perpetually stalks us. We must be continually mortifying it. This is a duty we cannot rest from. So in light of that, we've started to think about that in chapter 3, verse 5. And though God cares tremendously about how we behave how we act, how we appear to all the world watching us as followers of Christ, 
The far bigger concern of God always is the interior, the heart, and what is going on, as we'll see today, in our very deepest, darkest, innermost desires. One of the first things Jesus clarified in the Sermon on the Mount, after the Beatitudes, after the light of the world, he begins to say, here's what you've heard, but now I'm telling you, here's what really matters to the heart of God. And he deals with, you've heard it said, for example, do not commit adultery. I say to you, it is a far bigger deal than that. God's heart for you is don't lust at all for anyone who is not your spouse. Though there's lots of issues with Joshua Harris, he did get it right, and it probably was the, the publishing company, not him, but the title of a book in the 90s was Sex Isn't the Problem, and I'll clarify there, it's not the biggest problem, lust is. So Jesus in Mark 7 said, from within, out of the heart of man, come, and then he lists 13 things, evil thoughts, sexual immorality, just like Colossians, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, just like Colossians, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. And then he reiterates, all these evil things come from within, and that is what defiles a person. So God doesn't want us just focusing on the symptoms, but most of all, even today in Colossians 3, 5, focusing on the roots that are deeply embedded in our hearts even after conversion. Given that, I suggest to you that Colossians 3.5, particularly the five or six things in the latter half of the verse, are not different sins or different earthly things, but that most of them are really dealing with varied expressions of the same core evil or wickedness within us. What they all have in common is they all describe things that are strong desires. If not in every single person, they are common in the great majority of people. And they compete against God for the control and affection of our hearts. MacArthur called these sins in 3.5, sins of perverted love. Somebody else referred to them as deluded desires. So let's spend time now after we pray unpacking some of these for our own lives. Lord, we now ask of you what you declare in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. In faith, we acknowledge that all this scripture, this one verse that we are looking at, has been breathed out by you through the pen of Paul and preserved all of these things and is now this morning being sent forth by your spirit to accomplish its purpose in every single one of us who are hearing. Thank you for it. We know it will be, as it always is, immensely spiritually profitable for us. So teach us, reprove us where we need it, correct us where we need it, and please train us in your righteousness so that we will be complete, equipped for every good work for your glory's sake. We ask this as a church body in your name and for your glory. Amen.
So we're going to go to the end of the verse. Uh, I, with, there's a little fear and trepidation in taking things out of order from the way that God puts it in there. Uh, so I acknowledge that I'm going to the end, but I want to say that I think which is idolatry, that those closing three words are not just modifying the word coveting right in front of it, though that's possible, but really they are modifying that whole list of sins. And if you think about it, the very first commandment of God that he gave to Israel through Moses was, I am the Lord, I've redeemed you, I've saved you. In, in Israel's case, I brought you out of Egypt, out of slavery. In our case, I brought you out of sin and being enslaved to sin, I freed you from all of that. So number one thing that, that ought to be your response is, you don't have any other gods. There's nothing else you'll look to. No competing desire, love, passion, person, thing, position, other than God as the sole Lord of your life. John Calvin reminds us in light of this that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. Stephen Sharnock put it this way, all sin is founded in a secret atheism or unbelief in God, not fully, truly trusting him. All the wicked inclinations of the heart are sparks from this latent fire. We set up some lust in the place of God and pay to that homage which is due to our maker. Every sin is a kind of cursing of God in the heart. A man in every sin aims to set up his own will as his rule and his own glory as the end of his actions against the will and glory of God. That's what's at stake here in this short capturing with the word idolatry. God's point is there is to be absolutely nothing whenever we encounter it in daily life that takes precedence over God where our desires for those things trump God and his will and his glory. One other way we can think of this is the way that Jesus put it in Luke 16, that no human can really serve two masters or two gods or two loves or two idols. No one can. Over time, one or the other will trump, but you cannot serve both God and then you can fill in the blank. Money is one example. Sinful expressions of sex is another. Sports is another. Careers, and you can go on and on and on with what that might be. This was essentially Jesus' message to the rich young ruler when he came to him. It's essentially the message that God sent through striking Ananias and Sapphira dead. It's a lesson that we learned through Judas as well in the gruesome ending of his time of following Jesus around on this earth. God says it's not God and you can have one other thing you really like a lot. It's God or. Every day it's proven by what you choose and what you serve. And the question is, is Jehovah your theoretical God or is he your real God? In short, we could summarize verse 5 as saying, put all potential gods, whatever those things are in each of our 
hearts, and they vary. There's a whole host of them. Satan will use any of them. And by the way, have you noticed Satan isn't mentioned in Colossians anywhere in the book? All of this earthly stuff and junk is from us and about us. Put all the potential gods, anything that will detract from a pure, undivided devotion and love for the Lord, to death. Join Jesus, as we saw in Piper's illustration last week at the end of the message. Join Jesus in going in every cave with him, with his sword, and killing every possible idol, showing no mercy, ruthlessly expelling all the prostituting things that whisper against faithfulness to your God. God will not allow his people to keep indulging in evil desires and passions as if he is not enough for them. More on that later. God wants to be and requires and demands to be the unquestionable number one in every area of a Christian's life. Most of all, in the very deepest part of him. It's foundational to him being God. Now, given that background of idolatry, we're going to move to look at two particular. Remember last week we kind of clumped the impurity, the passions, and the evil desires all together as part of what's earthly in us. But we're going to spend a little bit of time on what one writer called the two evil, the, the evil twins. Of course, there's two. That must die because they, among all the sins, are two that often, commonly, take the place of God in people's hearts. Sexual desires and coveting or the desire for other things that God hasn't given us. These are both particularly deadly because they're so practiced, so pursued, so common all around us and in our own lives. So first of all, sexual immorality, back to the beginning of the list, then we'll end up with coveting. Sexual immorality is the word pornea, meaning from which we get pornography, but it's any and all perversion and corruption, sexual expression, activity, desire that is outside of God's one single narrow permission where a husband and a wife in a covenant relationship can express and experience it whole massive host of ways that this corruption or immorality happens, but it can happen in male or female, it can happen in single or married, it can happen in young, middle-aged, older. The sin is all over the pages of the Bible, one of the most prominent sins. It's a raging battle in so many people's lives, even Christians' lives. Few sins for many people are so enticing and have such a strong lure Few sins are as devastating and damaging in their effect on a relationship with God. And uh, if you were in Sunday school this morning, you heard that as well. Josiah began to unpack our sexuality in Genesis from the very beginning. And as a result, these sins are ones that have particularly severe consequences as Proverbs, many stories, and a couple of other New Testament passages we'll look at all illustrate. Here's even part of the danger of this particular sin. Talking about it this morning may ignite its fire in some hearts later today. 
Now, if sexual temptation is not a struggle for you, thank God. Thank God for that. It is a grace. At the same time, be careful you don't fall. Take heed. But also, you have plenty of other sins, I'm sure, to address and deal with. So you're not condemning, judging, look down on all those dirty people as if you're without sin yourself. And if it is a big struggle, if staying pure is a constant battle, may today urge you about why it's worth it, no matter the frequency of the temptations, the intensity of that, the temptation to let up, fight on, keep begging God for strength, and may the things we talk about even today help you toward that end, both theologically and otherwise. Here's part of why this particular sin is such a challenging thing to kill. I don't think I got these onto a slide, so you'll just have to listen. David Garland, our sexual expression, whatever form it takes, is not just something we do. It reflects who we are. So McLaren, Alexander McLaren illustrates that this way. It's easier to cut off the hand, which after all is not me, than to sacrifice passions and desires which, though they may be my worst qualities, are me. Tim and Kathy Keller in their book, Sex is perhaps the most powerful God-created way to help give you help you give your entire self to another human being. It's God's appointed way for two people, married, in covenant, to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. You must not use sex to say anything less. Hence, God's words about it are strong. Here's one example you've already seen on the slide of 1 Corinthians 6, but it's a passage I turn to often in addressing and dealing with this uh, struggle for people, even for my own life. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. It's meant for the Lord. What a, what a contrast of two ends of that. And the Lord for the body. And now he's going to unpack what he means by that. Particularly starting in verse 15. Do you not know? Do you not realize? Do you not theologically understand that your bodies are members of Christ? Your body belongs more to Christ than it does to you. You are united to Christ. So then the question do I take a member of Christ and make it a member with a prostitute? Never. And prostitute here is more than just a woman for hire on the street. It's any prostituting or perversion of our bodies or our minds or our eyes sexually. He goes on. Don't you know? Don't you realize? Asking questions. He who's joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her. The two become one flesh. But... Here's the contrast again. He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. What he's trying to show us is you can't separate your sexual sin, immorality, from who you are in Christ and Christ being with you and you with him. It's all woven together. 
Therefore, the next four words in verse 18 are the response. Flee from sexual immorality. Like Joseph, take off. Leave everything behind if you have to. It doesn't matter. Get out of there. With the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave his life to free you, run for your life. And then more reasons. Your body's a temple. It's a worship place. Josiah reminded us this morning from Romans 12.1 that in light of God's mercy, we are to present our bodies to him, holy, acceptable, without sexual sin or any other sins. That's our spiritual act of worship. So God's call is don't allow the desire, the, sexu- the, the craving of sexual pleasure, whether it is illicit or even legitimate in God's eyes, to be a controlling, driving idol in your everyday life. Be okay if you never experience it. It's not the end all of life. Christ is. Holiness is. The things above are. And it won't be a part of the life above. God is not against sex. He created it. He could have made our reproduction a whole different, very business-like deal, and he made it intensely enjoyable for our joy. He made it a holy joy. And he loves it when his people enjoy it to its fullest within the guidelines that he's given. And he hates it when his people pervert it in any way whatsoever. Another scripture that I often go to is 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8. We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. And now he's got three that's. Number one, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So 1 Corinthians 6 was flee from it. Run as fast as you can, as far as you need to. Here, abstain. Cut yourself off from it. Withdraw from it. Have nothing to do with it. That each of you may know how to control his body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God. What a massive difference it ought to make between those of us who know God and those who don't. That no one transgress and wrong his brother or sister in this matter. And here God takes a new angle of the tremendous violation of this with anyone. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. We've told you before and solemnly warned you, God's not called us for impurity in any shape, form, or fashion, but in holiness. And if you disregard this, you're not disregarding man, you're disregarding God. Who gives the spirit. Lots more that we could say on this. If I had more time, I was going to walk you through some of the things. But Proverbs 5, second half of Proverbs 6, so all of chapter 5, second half of chapter 6, and all of chapter 7 are worth reading over and over and over and over. If you're between 14 and 40, read it, read it, read it, read it, read it, hear it, know what it says, and by it grow wise in this. Just two quick closing thoughts from Piper on this. First of all, a short one. God does not forbid sexual sin because he's a killjoy, but because he opposes what kills joy. And then a little longer one. 
all misuses of our sexuality distort the true knowledge of God. God means for human sexual life to be a pointer and a foretaste of our relationship with him. Not only do all the misuses of our sexuality serve to conceal or distort the true knowledge of God in Christ, but it also works powerfully the other way around. This is where we'll close in a few minutes. The true knowledge of God in Christ serves to prevent the misuses of our sexuality. On the one hand, sexuality is designed by God as a way to know Christ more fully, and on the other hand, Christ more fully is designed as a way of guarding and guiding our sexuality. My conviction is, the better you know the supremacy of Christ, the more sacred and satisfying and Christ-exalting your sexuality will be. And then finally, out of Colossians 3, 5, and I think next week we'll be ready for 6 and 7 and 8. <clears throat> Coveting. To want to have more. Many translations here just use greed or greedy. Never 100% completely satisfied. There's always something more. It's putting your hope for happiness and pleasure in things. Very similar to sexual immorality, except expressed in a much broader way. Placing high value on outward enjoyment of earthly things whether it's tangible or intangible. The desire to have either more than what you have that God has given you or the desire to have what other people have. And so coveting often involves envy, the sin of envy as well. And it isn't just about how much you have, but how much more you want. Essentially, coveting is saying, God, you are not all satisfying to me. I need and want more. The things above that you talked about in Colossians 3, 1 to 4 just seem too far off, too surreal for the future. In essence, we're saying Christ doesn't fully fill me. I'm looking for more here and now than what I'm finding in God. Sam Storms. We give our affections to anything other than God on the assumption that it can do for our souls what he can't. In a sermon on 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, which says very tersely, godliness with contentment, with no coveting, is tremendous gain. It's so, so helpful for one's life and enjoyment and contentment. Piper in that sermon defines coveting as desiring something so much that you lose your contentment in God or losing your contentment in God so you start to seek it elsewhere. Covetousness, simply put, is a heart divided between two gods. Same warning that we got earlier. So, a few thoughts quickly from God's word on this. Jesus' warning in Luke 12, 15, after talking about the destruction of the man who just kept building more, he said, take care, take great care, watch your desires very closely. Look carefully for your heart craving more, 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 more. Be on your guard against all coveting of any sort about anything beyond God. For life does not consist, or you will not find a contentment and happiness in the abundance of possessions. It's what the 10th commandment gets at as well, that you are not to covet, and then God lists a neighbor's wife, then again he reiterates not to covet, and then he lists a whole host of things, and his point is, don't covet 
anything that doesn't belong to you, that hasn't been given you by God, be content with whatever God gives you, whether it is much or little. Ken Hughes points out that coveting, in a sense, is even more dangerous than sensual or sexual sins. Because coveting can be done publicly and in the open, and most people won't call you out on it, even in the church. In fact, sometimes we honor or we approve, we applaud those who just keep acquiring more and more and more and more. So while many battle sinful sexual cravings, probably far more battle and need to kill the broader sin of coveting. While many of us see that Scripture conveys sexual sin as powerful enough to drag people to hell, we need to realize that coveting can drag us to hell as well. 1 Timothy 6.10, Paul says to young Timothy, the love of, and again, you can put anything in here, but the love, the coveting, the craving, the desires, the passion for any earthly thing is a root for all kinds of other evils to come into your life. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many, many pangs. Which is the point of Proverbs 5, 6, and 7 as well. There is so much pain that's described in those verses. It should make none of us ever want in any way to have anything to do with sexual sins. So next week, verses 6 and 7, Lord willing, and beyond to look at. Uh, verse 6, just unpacking that would have been very timely today. But let me try to bring some uh, concluding thoughts. Even though both of these areas could have been a, unpacked for more sermons, more days, they're huge. If it's opened a door for you, then let's have conversation individually. Let's go to war and battle May this all ignite in you a desire to kill these things that perhaps with carelessness you have slipped into, you have not been vigilant against. Remember the words of Galatians 6.1 in this. If anyone is caught in any transgression, and you're not putting it to death, you are, who are spiritual should restore him or her in a spirit of gentleness. And in the process, keep watch on yourself, lest you be, too be tempted. But if you're not putting your idols, whether it's sexual immorality, coveting other things, or your desires to death that are not driving you to Christ, then hear God here and take it to heart. Let me try and summarize. I'll give you a short phrase and then try and unpack them each. I think there's three sin-killing focuses that I would encourage you toward. These are ones I have said many other times. I still believe in my heart of hearts that they are the keys more than anything else to killing the sin that yet remains in us. The pleasure of God, the love of God, and the glory of God. The pleasures of God, the love of God, and the glory of God. So first of all, the pleasure of God. Uh, somebody said all sins are attempts to fill a perceived void or need or want. And that's because we're not taking full advantage of all that Christ offers us. As long as we think, even subtly, even though we wouldn't answer it this way on a theological test, as long as our heart's passions still think that earthly pleasures 
family, friends, activities, whatever it is, will satisfy us more than God will, we will not put these things to death. These gods will continue to live in us and have life and power and grip on us. But when we begin to really taste and see how good, how satisfying, how perfectly complete and content we are and can be in Christ, all of these other desires fade away, are put to death. I had this in my notes. Josiah took us to it this morning. I'll take you back to it again now in case you weren't there or need to be reminded of already forgotten since this morning. In God's presence is where you find fullness of joy. And it is the only place. At his right hand, implying in intimacy with him, when you are walking beside him in life, at his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. But that begin now. So C.S. Lewis, we are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition, and you can name a host of other lesser gods. When infinite joy is being offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far, 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 I added far, too easily pleased. Milton Vincent. Eyes do not rove, nor do fleshly lusts rule when the heart is fat with the love of Jesus. Which brings us to our second focus. Focusing on the love of God. The love of God for us. The love of Christ and what he has done. Remember the opening verse we looked at this morning. The love of God compels us. It is what drives us, empowers us. In all acts of sin we are saying that we love something else more than God. And let's recognize that a godly love will kill. It will kill the things that God hates and replace it with a deepening love for God. And then third and finally, and I'll try to unpack more of these in the coming weeks, the glory of God. And I want to just take you back. I wish I would have put this slide back up from last week. 2 Corinthians 3.18. It reads, We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That's not a command. It's a description, beholding the glory of the Lord. But take it as a charge and a call and an invitation. Behold the glory of the Lord and stop chasing all these lesser things. They're glories. There's glory that we are chasing in all of this coveting and sin. But the glory, the glory that transforms us, the glory that will make all of these lesser things nothing to us, the glory that will put our evil passions to death is beholding the glory of our Lord in his word, in the gospel, and in our intimate relationship. God is holding out and offering to us infinite, perfect joy, happiness, contentment, satisfaction, and pleasure. And so is the world. Only it's temporary. It's fleeting. It's never satisfying. 
It's so broken. It brings so much pain. It doesn't tell you all of that. It just says, chase these, chase these. And here God holds this glory for us to behold. Behold the glory. Father, I pray that you will keep working in all of us to help us behold your glory. It's there. It's seeable for us with the eyes of faith as we walk through your word and amongst your people. And I pray that we will stir each other to see the greater glory and forsake the lesser glories that are so empty. Please help us. Please work in us. Please draw our hearts to see the pleasure of you, the love of you, and the glory of you that will turn our hearts away from every other lesser God. We ask in your name and for your glory. Amen.